The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Uh, the, um, the evidence is not all that clear at all. And um, I am not sure that there's any parallel, really unambiguous parallel, to the use of oidokuntes in an absolute usage with a positive sense. Almost, uh, I mean, most of the references um, seem to be uh, negative. And the ones that are positive always have an explicit complement. Um, I don't want to, um, again, spend time, because I, I have lots of references here. But um, when you look at all, all those facts in terms of the usage of the term, and you add to them Lightfoot's observation that uh, you know, something interesting. Why does he keep repeating this phrase, oidokuntes, oidokuntes? And Lightfoot concludes that there seems to be a tinge of disparagement. A tinge of disparagement. That is not to say, however, that Paul had a low regard for these men. As a matter of fact, the mutual respect which is evident from verses 8 through 10, to say nothing of Paul's you know, occasional comments elsewhere in his letters, as in 1 Corinthians when he talks about Peter or whatever, when you put all that together, what you come up with, and here again I think Lightfoot is right on target, is a negation of the exclusive claims urged for them by the Judaizing party. By using a term that has a tinge of disparagement, Paul is negating the exclusive claims urged for these apostles by the Judaizing party. Get the point? I, I think there is a... a uh, you can avoid the two extremes of saying that either Hoidokuntes is negative in the sense that Paul doesn't have high regard for the apostles. That would be one extreme. The other extreme is to say that Hoidokuntes has a positive sense or even a neutral sense. I think there's something in, in the middle here. There is a negative nuance, but that negative nuance arises not from Paul's own estimate of who these apostles are, but uh, arises rather out of the claims of the Judaizers that only these men are to be regarded. The third group of people involved are called the Hoi Pseudadelphoi, Hoi Pseudadelphoi, the false brethren. It's interesting that the 
This phrase appears also in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 26. That's the passage where you have a list of all the dangers that Paul was facing you know, throughout his ministry. And this one uh, is really kind of like a climax to the list. Kindunois en Ciudadelfois, dangers of false brethren. Uh, it's as though this is the most insidious thing of all. These false brethren are said to be paresactus, verse 4. Paresactus, paresactos, which um, uh, probably emphasizes the notion that uh, the, these Judaizers were really the innovators. They were bringing something in that wasn't there before. Though the word by itself perhaps uh, does not imply something surreptitious. In this whole context, I think that that's what comes through. Uh, definitely the verb from which paresactus, paresactus, or no, sorry, the, the, the verb hoites, hoitenes pareseothon, that verb, um, pareserchomai, can definitely be used of unworthy motives. And if you have any doubts about how Paul perceives them, certainly the next verb, kataskopesai, leaves no room for doubt that Paul regards these people in a very, very negative light. These really are false brethren. Uh, they don't deserve to be part of, of the community. They are, they have even wrong kinds of motives. They want to enslave us. All right, so much for the characters in the drama. Secondly, I want us to look at the outcome, which you see in verses 6 through 10. And uh, the reason I, I think we need to deal with this question here is that uh, we must find out how the passage contributes to the progression of the argument. The central statement is what you have in verse 6, uden prosanethenta. At the end of verse 6, uden prosanethenta. They added nothing. When you have uh, later in verse 7, tunantion, on the contrary, uh, it suggests that there was no subordination from either party, but rather there's mutual respect and equality. There's a recognition of a special ministry. And you see, that point carries uh, particular force because if the Judaizers claimed the support of Jerusalem, then they really were the ones violating the Jerusalem agreement itself. So there's a recognition on the part of the three that Paul had a special ministry given to him. Now, there is something else. That's verse 10. There is a sense in which the apostles did add something to Paul's ministry. 
you know, in, in verse 6 he said they added nothing to me. But then in verse 10 he seems to qualify that by saying manon only. There's a caveat, there's a qualification. I will not deny, says Paul, that uh, they asked us to remember the poor. Now that seems like a like a peculiar remark and, and somewhat unnecessary. So all the more reason to pay attention uh, to it. Why was the comment necessary? Well, perhaps because it could be viewed as an exception to the separation of labor between Paul and the others, uh, in which case uh, Paul's collection could be understood as a violation of their agreement. But uh, I, that, I'm not convinced that that's really going to help us here. The, that seems an unreasonably rigid understanding of the agreement. Certainly a recognition of special gifts does not prevent some kind of cross-ministry. Another possibility, I think a better one, is that the Judaizers pointed to the Pauline collection as evidence of submission. Now, Paul does not deny the point that, uh, you know, his remembering of the poor is somehow connected with the request of the three. But he stresses that that would be the only instance of his following their instructions. And further points out that independently of their request, that was already his own earnest desire anyway. So it isn't as though the apostles are asking him to do something which you know, he didn't want to do or was not part of uh, how he perceived his ministry. Now, there has been a lot of debate on verse 10 and, and what implications this may have for the dating of the letter and so on because you have this espudasa, hokai espudasa, the very thing that we, that I had determined to do or whatever. Um, You know, it's interesting how little grammatical things can lead to all kinds of big scholarly questions and theories and so on. You have neomen, that's a first plural. Espudasa is a first singular. So now you can argue, well, you see, that indicates a separation between Paul and Barnabas. They asked us to remember the poor, but then we separated, and then this is what I wanted, what I was determined to do. Um... You, you have the question whether the aorist here might be understood in some kind of um, you know, pluperfect sense. You know, this is what I had, even prior to this, uh, been interested in doing. There's further the question whether maybe uh, the reference is to the famine visit, you see, and then that is used as a further argument to date Galatians early because this is talking about the collection uh, that um, you know, Paul had already was already doing or whatever, and all of those questions, frankly, I don't think admit of an answer on purely on the basis of this text. Uh, you know, you're just trying to answer too many questions that the text is not addressing, and uh, we just don't have uh, all the information uh, that we might want. Machen, uh, this is on page 115 of his notes on Galatians. Uh, says that uh, Paul appeals to the three not because of their real greatness, 
which had nothing to do with his own apostolic authority, but because of the greatness attributed to them by the Judaizers. Betts uh, points out that uh, the concession of verse 10 in effect strengthens Paul's defense because you see now you specify what is the nature of if you want to call it my submission okay here it is what does it have to do with anything of importance with regard to the, the issues being discussed among us so the, in conclusion, you see, if you remember, we're talking about what is the outcome, or what what is Paul trying to to set forth is this point: neither by initial training after my conversion, nor by prolonged discipling, nor at some well-known official meeting did my commission proceed from men. And yet, in spite of that you shouldn't get the impression that there was lack of harmony among us. There was true harmony between Paul on the one hand and the three apostles on the other. But now, what was the issue anyway? What really was the point of contention? And uh, here we have to look at verses 3 to 5. And uh, there, there's a problem because, as you know, verse 4 seems to be syntactically uh, disconnected. And uh, to try to figure out what the issue was here, you really have to deal with the syntax of verse 4. And there are at least four different ways of dealing with that syntax. The, the first one, as you can see there in your outline, is simply to identify... Uh, the construction as an, an akaluthon. In other words, Paul begins a new clause with, and this is a, a subordinate clause, but because of the false brethren, and he never really finishes the sentence. You never have a main clause that corresponds to this subordinate clause. In this case, the idea would be that, that Paul intended to talk about this contention that arose on account of the false brethren. But uh, one of the relative clauses, namely verse 5, to whom we did not yield even for a moment, even though it's a relative clause, it already mentions the outcome of this contention. So he impatiently moves on to something else. Now, this would be a real anacoluthon, okay? Uh, there's no connection, syntactical connection between verse 4 and uh, anything else. But there are other ways of construing it. Uh, the second possibility is to construe it syntactically with verse 5. According to this view, Paul again begins a new subordinate clause at verse 4. But verse 5 is not a relative clause itself, but a main clause. How do you do that? Well, by a text-critical decision that hois hude, hois hude, is not part of the original text. 
if hoizude is not part of the of the text, then you know what you end up with. Because of the false brethren who did this and the other, we yield that to them for a moment, which is exactly the opposite meaning of what we have uh, assumed all along. And uh, the argument is that um, the argument would be, yeah, Paul did um, uh, Paul is agreeing that Titus was circumcised, but the reason for that was not that the three compelled him to yield. On the contrary, the, the Judaizers were creating such a difficult situation that in a moment of weakness I yielded. Well, the external evidence for this textual variant is extremely restricted. There's only one Greek manuscript, D, selected Western witnesses. And um, some people argue that probably the scribes were a little bit confused between Titus and Timothy, you know. Some Christians, just like you get Rachel and Rebecca mixed up, maybe Titus and Timothy, as if they knew that um, uh, Timothy had been circumcised, they make a mistake here and they leave the Holy Suday alone. Anyway, hardly anybody today would accept that text-critical decision, so B isn't going to work because if you don't accept that text-critical judgment, then verse 5 is not a main clause, but it is a relative clause, and you don't have any syntactical connection. So another possibility is to construe it with verses 1 and 2, the main verb of which is anebain. But I went up to Jerusalem because of these false brethren. Now, I don't know who came up with this interpretation first. It's, it's fairly old. And uh, it was adopted with fear and trembling by Machen. I say with fear and trembling because he's obviously not comfortable with it. But uh, he makes a uh, comment that the, uh, he says, um, the interpretation seems to commend itself to us anew whenever we come back to a fresh reading of the passage. The point would be that Paul's going to Jerusalem was so far from involving compromise that not even Titus, who was right there with me in Jerusalem, had to be circumcised. No, the reason I went up was not that I needed endorsement from anyone, but on account of the false brethren who had to be stopped uh, at all costs. But the main objection to this way of, of relating the clauses is that it's just it's the distance between them. you know, uh, And not just the number of words in between Anebe in verse 1 and, and the verse 4. It's, it's a development or the shift in thought uh, and, and Machen has to respond by saying that, that Anebain really expresses the main thought of the whole passage and so on. And uh, I, I'm, I just don't find that convincing. So what is left for us is to construe it with verse 3. That there is some kind of syntactical connection here. Uh, this, is, um, this view would require really downplaying the uh, conjunction de in verse 4. Um, and then it would read something like this. Uh, but neither Titus who was with me, even though he was a Greek, was forced to be circumcised because of the false brethren. Titus was not circumcised. 
or possibly he was not compelled to be circumcised. Or alternatively, we could say that there is some kind of ellipsis, uh, you know, something, for, for example, an attempt was not made to force circumcision, yet he was circumcised because of the false brethren. There you put in the emphasis on the uh, cognitive idea of enacaste. He was, um, he was not forced to, circ to be circumcised, but because of the false brethren, he, uh, uh, he was anyway. There was no compulsion, but he, he, he was circumcised anyway, f anyway for other reasons. Um, well, you can classify these approaches in a variety of ways. I, I think that um, the best way to handle this is really the way the NIV does it, uh, as thinking that there's some kind of ellipsis, which in, ef which in effect, it really has the effect of relating verse 4 syntactically to verse 3. It's this last uh, possibility but by virtue of an ellipsis. I think the NIV does something like, uh, in verse 3, but he wasn't, uh, but not even Titus was, was compelled to be circumcised. The only reason the, the issue came up at all was because of the false brethren who made a big stink of it, you see. Um, so an ellipsis of the situation that arose, and then it was, and this arose because. So, you know, some people would, might still call this an akoluthon because you, you don't have a, uh, the connection seems to be broken. Um, the difference is actually fairly important. In, in, in the anakoluthon, verse 4 would begin a new thought altogether. Because of the false brethren, and Paul was, go Paul was going to say something else, and he never gets around to saying it. That's the Anakoluthon strictly considered. This other view that I'm suggesting does imply a, a uh, syntactic connection with what precedes, only that what precedes is not expressed. There's an ellipsis here. But it's a very natural ellipsis. You know, even Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. Compelled to be circumcised? Why this, why, why this problem? Oh, because of some false brethren, you see, who were really after... Uh, enslaving us. All right, now we're ready for determining the occasion. And the problem here is, uh, is this a reference to the uh, Jerusalem Council of chapter 15 or not? And this is where, you know, the that chapter uh, that you were supposed to read for today, if you got around to it, um, kind of tries to summarize the evidence. My, my basic concern is this. The only event in Acts that appears to correspond with this one is indeed the Apostolic Council in chapter 15. Um, now many argue that, that this is not likely and um, the reason given is the differences. And you have them in the outline, you also have them in the, in the chapter. Uh, and I make the point in the chapter, you will recall, that all these differences, with the possible exception of, of the mention or lack of mention, the lack of mention of the decrees in, in Paul, all the other ones are exactly the kinds of differences that you expect when two people are describing 
an event, and these are two people who have different points of view, there are different uh, purposes behind what they're writing. Uh, this is routine. This is exactly what happens. Especially if people are, you know, retelling something that happened, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. And now you are in two completely different settings, and, and you're trying to accomplish different things, and, and it's going to come out differently. So I find these supposed differences between the two events, Acts 15 and Galatians 2, they just don't phase me at all, with the possible exception of the fact that Paul does not mention decrees. But now, what are the alternatives? Well, the only real possibility, if, if you take Acts half seriously, is Acts 11. And the identification with Acts 11 is not impossible. Uh, could be supported by reference to Agabus' prophecy, remember? Because Agabus prophesied the famine, that's why they went to Jerusalem. And maybe you could say that's the revelation that Paul's talking about. I kind of doubt it. But uh, some people argue that way. The reference to the poor in verse 10, some people try to link as well. But uh, there is a, uh, a serious chronological problem. The uh, famine in question is dated in the year 44. If Paul was converted as early as the year 32, and we add the uh, actually 17 years mentioned in Galatians, because you have the three years of... Um, um, you know, from his conversion to Damascus, and then the 14 years of chapter 2, verse 1, you got 17. You end up with the year 49, not 44, and 49 is precisely the year of the uh, Apostolic Council. Now, true, uh, it doesn't have to be 17 years. It may be, you know, part of a year counts as a year, so it may be two years plus 13, and you end up with 15. That's still really pushing it, because if, if now you push back uh, Paul's conversion to year 31, we're still left with a famine visit taking place in the year 46, so that doesn't quite fit exactly. So you have this further move, which looks a little suspicious because you're trying to solve a problem. doesn't mean that it's wrong, but you know it, it makes you wonder that the epita in, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, looks back uh, to Paul's conversion rather than to the visit of verse 18. And so the 14 years, which could be interpreted as 13, that's the whole expanse from his conversion to this period. Um, this juggling of dates barely fits. But, you know, all along I'm assuming here that Jesus died in the year 30. If you take the view that Jesus died in the year 33, which is a real possibility, and it is preferred by a number of scholars, then the improbability of squeezing all these years uh, is, is extremely high. You really have to do an incredible amount of juggling. So I think there are problems with that. But uh, what for me you know, is, is very persuasive, is rather similarities between Galatians 2 and Acts 15. And uh, you've read it, I don't want to go through them again, but uh, 
you know, the same places, Antioch and Jerusalem, are involved, same basic groups of people. Paul and Barnabas, at least one other person is one group. The, cir the circumcision party is another group. The apostles is another group. Uh, the same relative time, the format, the, the same issue of circumcision, uh, the mood seems to be the same, and the result is the same. And then, you know, when Lightfoot, after reviewing most of that, makes that comment, uh, uh, which I say is, is uh, probably the understatement of the century, a combination of circumstances so striking is not likely to have occurred twice within a few years. Um, you know, and I think I make this point that it's it's the same sort of thing as going to the Gospels, Synoptic Gospels, and you see two events, or say one event related uh, in parallel fashion by Matthew and Mark, but there are some differences that are difficult to resolve, and so, oh well, there are two different events. You see, and now you solve the problem. Well, in principle, of course, we have to grant that that may be the case sometimes. But it's just too easy a solution, too easy a solution. And I think every attempt should be made to solve the problem without, without taking what, to me, is an easy way out. And then the second objection, of course, has to do with the, uh, some page 88. Uh, why doesn't he mention the decrees of, uh, of the Jerusalem Council. And um, doesn't that undermine his credibility? And I acknowledge that of, of all the uh, problems that have uh, allegedly, you know, uh, been proposed here with regard to the identification, this is one that is a significant problem. I don't think it's insuperable by any stretch of the imagination, but it is. The others, as I argued, are things that you actually expect when two people are describing the same event from different perspectives. This one is a little bit more difficult to deal with, and um, nevertheless, I think that there's a response to it. Uh, one of them has to do with the Western text. I don't pay too much attention to this, so I don't want to uh, expand on it. But um, more significant is the fact that a reading of Acts 15 that pays a lot of attention to its own context, I think, will lead to the conclusion that this decree, I mean, these exceptions, if you want to call them, th these particular qualifications were addressed to a very specific historical problem, namely what was happening in Antioch. I'm not saying that they didn't have any implications uh, of a broader nature, and sure enough, Paul brings those decrees with him when he goes through Asia Minor. But the fact, it's still a fact that when Paul writes to the Corinthians, and they're dealing with matters that seem to be addressed by, uh, not seem to be, obviously addressed by the uh, decrees of the, of the Jerusalem Council, he doesn't mention the decrees there either. Does that mean that 1 Corinthians was written before Acts 15? Nobody would suggest that. Romans chapter uh, 14 also might come into the picture. Uh, it does not have as strong a bearing, in other words, 
as I think uh, some people suppose. But uh, moreover, I point out at the bottom of 88 and 89 that um, if you assume that Acts is reliable, then when Paul, as, and, and then also assuming that the Galatians is written late, which is the whole point that, that we're trying to uh, decide here, the Galatians would already have been aware of these decrees because that's what Acts 16 verse 4 says. Uh, he's not hiding anything from them. They already know what happened at the Jerusalem Council. It didn't do any good. I mean, their knowledge of that didn't keep them from being persuaded by these opponents. So here again, there's no point in, in, uh, in addressing that issue in, in so many words. Uh, besides, I go on to say, on the basic issue that the Gentiles need not submit to circumcision, the decree supported Paul's point. Uh, so it isn't as though uh, you know, his credibility is being uh, shaken by his failure to mention the decrees. That doesn't, uh, I don't think that fits very well. Scholars who argue against the identification of Acts 15 with Galatians 2 give different reasons. See, somebody uh, will tell you um, the fact that Paul omitted the decrees must mean that he couldn't have written this yet, I mean that, that the meeting couldn't have taken place yet, because, and then here's where you have the two almost diametrically opposed ways of looking at this thing. Uh, one, which is the one that I think you're dealing with here is, uh, it would have helped him, so why not mention it? But you see, normally the argument is exactly the contrary. People say, it hurt him because he is hiding from the Galatians the fact that he was submitting to some decree by the apostles. And that's, that's the accusation that I'm focusing on. Now, I do say something in the, uh, in the footnote that, that tries to address another point of it. It does get a little confusing. But uh, to me, the, the very fact that it gets confusing, namely that people can go at it in either way, to me is a sign that the argument is not all, not all that uh, substantive if you can take it in, in completely opposite uh, ways. Um, you notice that at the very end of the chapter, I do briefly address the question of what's the point anyway uh, of dealing with the date of Galatians. And I do think that the question of the, um, uh, the recipients, whether it's the north or the south, that has relatively little bearing on how you interpret the text. But I think it makes a rather significant difference. For example, when you're dealing with, again, the, the passage that we're going to deal with after the, the break, verses 11 to 14. Paul, Peter's behavior, what was happening in Antioch, whether that took place before or after the Jerusalem Council is, I think, pretty significant in understanding the event and also in understanding Paul's reaction to the event. So um, I don't think it's just uh, you know, a scholarly game of uh, interest to people in ivory tires. I think it does have an exegetical significance and I do want to, uh, to address that. All right, let's uh, talk about the confrontation in Antioch and uh, 
again, in terms of the lecture outline, you will notice that I, I want to divide our discussion into two main sections, namely the, this, the narrative about the uh, incident itself in verses 11 to 14, and then the rest of the chapter drawing uh, the theological implications of what that event was all about. And then, as you know, that uh, latter paragraph serves as an unusually handy transition to the second main section of the letter, uh, the theological part or polemical part. And it really does look like a rather deliberate a rhetorical move on Paul's part to go from one to the other by using this incident in this way. And incidentally, quite parenthetically, I don't want to make much of this at all, but that could in turn be used uh, to support the theory that the incident described here does not necessarily come subsequent to the meeting of verses 1 to uh, 10. Uh, I think it probably does. Uh, some people have argued that it doesn't necessarily have to follow. It may have been earlier. And uh, you could say, well, Paul is putting it here because it leads nicely to that second section of the, uh, of the book and not necessarily because it was temporarily, temporarily subsequent. Now let's talk about the historical context of uh, this event. <clears throat> um, I don't think, as I said, that it is earlier than the meeting of verses 1 through 10. And uh, the reason some people have argued that way is that they think that Peter's behavior at Antioch would be a violation of the decrees of, of Acts 15. That is, the, the agreement that the apostles came to, according to Acts 15, were such that for Peter to do this now would be a violation of those decrees. Well, Peter obviously wouldn't have done so. Therefore, this event must have taken place prior to uh, the uh, uh, Apostolic Council. But I think that way of, of arguing misunderstands the nature of the problem that uh, Peter was facing here. One could argue that the specific problem in view here was not even dealt with by the council. Uh, and I think here both Burton in his commentary and Machen are correct when they uh, say something to this effect, uh, that the council, what, what the council was really saying to the Gentiles was, you don't need to become Jews and keep the law. The council then also said to the Jews, uh, you can remain Jewish and keep the law. The council never said to the Jews, you must remain Jewish. See the difference there? That, that, to me, that's, that's critical. Uh, the council did not say, the Gentiles must remain Gentiles and the Jews must remain Jewish. All the council said was the Gentiles need not become Jewish. 
while at the same time the Jews may remain Jewish in their way of life. And therefore, Gentiles, please, don't make life difficult for the Jews by uh, violating certain things that are particularly offensive. Now, the question is this. Here you have two different principles. The, Jew, the, the Gentiles need not convert to Judaism. Christian Jews may remain Jews and continue their Jewish practices. But what if those two principles should conflict? See, that's what the Jerusalem Council did not address. And table fellowship was precisely that kind of conflict. Why? Well, here you are in Antioch, where there's, there are you know, many Gentiles and also many Jews. And uh, you're faced with this question of having, having fellowship at the table, eating a meal together. Here you have a problem. Because if the Jew decides, well, my Jewish practices say that, we, that I'm not supposed to have table fellowship with a Gentile, but if I don't have table fellowship with the Gentiles, then the principle of unity is undermined. On the other hand, if I decide to have fellowship with the Gentiles, I end up breaking the ceremonial law and not being able to practice my Jewish way of life. So you see, by not addressing that specific issue, the Jerusalem Council apparently had left the matter to the conscience of the individuals. I'm not saying that it is, they, they did this consciously, Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I don't know. But they didn't address it. And that's why I'm saying that the narrative here, beginning with verse 11, is concerned with a distinct problem. Closely related, to be sure, but distinct problem. Now, we have very good reason to believe that Jews in Antioch, as a whole were in the practice of communing with Gentiles. So that the practice of the Christians in Antioch involved extending the significance of that very important decision made by the council. Now, Peter comes to Antioch. And what happens? Without giving it a second thought, I'm reading between the lines here. <clears throat> Peter is happy to fit into this arrangement. He does not see a particular problem. This was natural, congenial to Peter. You would expect him to do this, particularly after his experience in the house of Cornelius, according to Acts 10. But 
Jewish Christians in Judea as a whole, people who would not have been pressured by, by the presence of, of many Gentile Christians, as was the situation in Antioch, Jewish Christians in Judea probably would have balked at this arrangement. So what creates a crisis here is the arrival of these people that Paul uh, refers to as Tinas Apo Jacobu, some from James. So what creates a crisis here is the arrival of these people that Paul uh, refers to as Tinas Apo Jacobu, some from James. Now, I don't know whether you're aware of um, the amazing amount of debate with regard to that phrase, some from James. Are these people that were actually sent by him to check up on Peter or something? Here, unfortunately, the compression of the narrative, because obviously Paul is giving it to us in just a few sentences, uh, and that creates some ambiguity. So uh, there are several possible identifications. One, the one, the one that I have just mentioned, uh, maybe they were Judaizers who were sent by, J by James to uh, see what Peter was doing and, and the other Jews. A second possibility, these were what shall we call them, quasi-Judaizers, uh, people on good terms with James, and they now uh, abuse their authority, and they present themselves in this way or something. Uh, third, they were Judaizers who had no particular connection with James, they're just claiming to be his representatives. A fourth possibility that has been proposed is that they were not Judaizers as such, uh, but the Christian Jews who had very strong scruples. Now part of the uh, difficulty hinges on the interpretation of the phrase fabumenos tus peritomes. Uh, what, what Peter did, he did fearing those of the circumcision. What does that mean, that he feared them? Uh, does it mean that these people were criticizing Peter and maybe even threatening him? Or does it simply mean that Peter was afraid to offend the sensibilities of, of these visiting Jews? Unfortunately, I don't really think we can answer that question. There are a number of uh, theories about it. Uh, and I, I prefer to leave it that way. Let, let's not try to, uh, let's not think that we have to nail it exactly. And then if we continue to look at the passage and see what else we can draw from it, uh, we may decide that, that the basic thrust of the narrative uh, can be identified without having to solve that, that historical problem. So let's look at the literary context and uh, think for a minute not so much about what exactly was happening there 
as what Paul is, is wanting to do with this. And uh, the best way of, of addressing that is by asking the question, why does Paul bring this matter up here? Why does he bring it up here? As I have already suggested, part of the answer is uh, that I think it leads beautifully to the next section. But uh, that by itself is, is not adequate. What else could we say? Well, the standard answer, I think, I mean, what, what you read most of the time in the commentaries and, and other works, is that the reason why we have this passage here is that it is the crowning argument for Paul's independence. And, and that independence is established by his having rebuked Peter. So Paul is saying to the Galatians and to his opponents, look, if I rebuke Peter in public, that should make it very plain to you that I do not depend on him or the other Jerusalem apostles. My authority is independent, independent of that. Well, uh, it's quite possible that uh, this element plays a role here. But I have suspect this is rather secondary. If uh, the analysis that I've been giving you, you know, so far is correct, then this incident is not brought up by Paul himself to make a point, but rather it was an incident that had been used by the Judaizers. And if so, it was their, uh, you know, pièce de résistance, if you, resistance, if you will, with regard to their accusations of, of Paul being a renegade. Uh, the point is, the Judaizers could have said something like, well, he even had the gall to publicly humiliate, you know, the prince of the apostles or something. And so Paul deals with this incident because it had already been raised, and he needs to explain why he had to do this, why he had to do it. Now this is speculative historical reconstruction. And now you're gonna have to decide whether uh, my theory here is driving my interpretation of the text or whether there are enough traits in the text itself to support what I'm about to tell you uh, as to the meaning of what's going on here. What is P Peter's error? <clears throat> Uh, Burton, I think, is quite right in emphasizing the phrase anankatseis uh, judaitsen, you are forcing them to Judaize, that is to practice as Jews. Uh, I think he exaggerates the issue about uh, the Jews being released from the law and some other things he has to say there, but, uh, but he is right in, in focusing on that element of Paul's rebuke. That's, that's where the whole thing lies. Burden goes on to argue that Paul would not have objected if Peter from the first had abstained. You understand what he's saying here? Let's suppose that Peter, when he came to visit uh, the church in Antioch, 
from the very beginning had said, well, you know, I have certain Jewish scruples and, and this and the other, and I'd rather not have fellowship with the Gentiles, uh, as, you know, the Jerusalem Council said that that was quite okay. And that if that had been Peter's behavior from the very beginning, Paul would not have objected in the way he did. Now, maybe he might have taken him aside and said, you know, Peter, maybe you're taking this a little bit too far. And this but he would not have rebuked him in public. But you see, Peter, by having already fellowship with the Gentiles, he had, in effect, communicated that that kind of separation between Jew and Gentile was not important to him. Paul says, you were already ethnikos zeis. You were already living as a Gentile. And therefore, what is happening here is a reversal of behavior. And this can only be described as hypocrisies. And that is what led to the crisis. By the way, um, people assume that the uh, Greek substantive hypocrisies ought to be translated hypocrisy. And that the uh, noun hypocrites, it ought to be translated hypocrite. I have always had problems with that because I am not convinced that the, the very strong pejorative nuances of the, of the term in English correspond exactly with those of the term in Greek. Uh, of course, in Greek, too, it has a pejorative nuance. But you see, when we call somebody a hypocrite, that's very strong language. I mean, that's about as strong as you can get. And it usually connotes that the person has wrong motives. You know, they're really trying to get away with something and they're being very un, un, you know, untrue to what the, the real convictions are and so on and so forth. I think it's, impossible, it's uh, important to keep in mind that the term hypocrites uh, could, could be used in a somewhat morally neutral sense of an individual who's playing a part in the theater. That's a common usage of the term. We don't use the term hypocrisy that way, you see. It has a, a totally negative connotation. And therefore, I am I, concerned that um, we don't make this accusation more offensive than it really is. Uh, Paul is accusing Peter of behaving, behaving in a way that is inconsistent with his convictions. And to the extent that the term hypocrisy <coughs> communicates that, all right. But I, I continue to think that the word has a much stronger uh, nuance in English and it has other connotations. Now, Machen, in his book on the origin of Paul's gospel, has, I think, a, um, an unusually fine uh, insight into this whole thing. And uh, in the chapter that you're supposed to read for next uh, time, uh, I think that's the one where I talk about it and I quote him at length. But uh, the, the key passage there, it's taken from page 102 of not of his notes in Galatians, but of his book on the origin of Paul's religion. Uh, here was his great crisis, but, says Machen, 
God had not deserted his church. The church was saved through the instrumentality of Paul. To Paul had been revealed the full implications of the gospel, namely the freedom of the Gentiles. And so he had to speak up. Now this has to do with the distinctiveness of Paul's ministry, uh, his understanding of what was involved. And, uh, you know, Machen, this makes this in, an interesting remark, which I try to exploit in the chapter you're supposed to read for next week. Um, by describing Paul's own understanding and conviction the way he does, he implies that the other apostles did not have uh, that commitment to the freedom of the Gentiles. And it made Paul's ministry all that more distinctive for that, uh, for that very reason. By the way, uh, Machen also notes that um, the real conduct, the, sorry, the real issue here had to do with conduct. And he uses that term orthopodel, to walk straight, if you want to etymologize a little bit, uh, to behave in a correct fashion. Not Peter's theology. If anything, Machen points out, uh, Paul affirms the, the common understanding. He goes on to begin with verse 15. So the question is not, we disagree on the principle. We disagree on the practice. And, and Paul, um, and, and Peter, uh, you are behaving in a way that is not consistent with this principle that we all agree on, namely that we're saved not by our works, but by grace. So Machen goes on to say that the passage, far from establishing a fundamental disagreement between Peter and Paul, really furnishes the strongest possible evidence of their fundamental unity. Remember, this is the passage that F.C. Bauer leaned on to, um, to argue for a, a fundamental rift between Paul and Peter, between the Gentile and Jewish Christianity. And Mason says, if you look at this carefully, you'll find it's exactly the opposite. That the character of, of Paul's rebuke would not make sense unless there were that fundamental unity to begin with. All right, um, let's move on to this next uh, section, verses 15 to 21. Um, this is um, obviously an incredibly rich paragraph. Um, in a few... Uh, Biblical verses are quoted more frequently than chapter 2, verse 20. To me, uh, um, I have been crucified with Christ and so on. But most people have no idea of its context. You know, I, 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 it would be an interesting survey. Go to any um, church setting and uh, ask people, do you know this verse? Oh, yeah. Okay, now what, what comes before and after it? And nobody would have... Well, few people would have any idea what, what the context is. <clears throat> and part of the reason is that it's a difficult passage. It's uh, actually fraught with uh, quite a few uh, exegetical problems. Yet this is precisely the, the arena where some of the most fundamental questions of Pauline theology have to be fought. And not surprisingly, it is here where Burton uh, shows his underwear. Uh, shamelessly. I mean, here, at this point, you can really begin to tell 
where his theology uh, uh, really takes root. Yet to complicate the problem, uh, one finds it very difficult to deal with the passage before you have actually dealt with chapter 3. So keep in mind that what I'm going to be doing here has something of a provisional character. In other words, I'm not going to be able to uh, try to demonstrate everything because in, in part it depends on what we're going to do when we get to chapter 3. First of all, let's look at some of the uh, exegetical problems. For example, there are lexical questions um, in verses 15 and 16, and not least the meaning of uh, the word hamartolos. Uh, we who are, um, who are Jews by birth are not Gentile sinners. Hmm, what does that mean, that they're not, we're not sinners? And then is um, Christ a servant of, of sin, you know, uh, that kind of uh, language. What, what is really involved in that? And then verse 17, if we have been found to be sinners, what does that refer to? Um, what is the meaning of pistis Jesu Christu, the faith? of or in Jesus Christ, or faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And what about that most controversial phrase, erga nomo, the works of the law? Is that the obedience demanded and intended by the law in general? Or is it simply a legalistic interpretation of the law? Is that what works of the law means, a legalism, not, not the commands as such, but a legalistic uh, handling of the law? Or is it simply a reference to what Dunn calls these boundary markers, these uh, ethnic symbols distinguishing uh, Jewish identity? So a uh, number of lexical problems. And then you have the problem of the syntax of verses 17 to 19. Now, in your outline, you see that I have a little chart in which I have uh, labeled each of the clauses. And um, let, let's go over it first so that you know what, what we're dealing with here. Uh, line A is just the um, conditional, but if. Then you have two lines. Um, Seeking to be justified in Christ to we have been found, we also have been found to be sinners. Then the apotheosis of, the, um, uh, of that uh, condition, therefore is Christ a servant of sin. Then C, not at all, and that's uh, the first problem. Uh, is that a denial of the protasis, sorry, of the whole condition, A and B together, or is it a denial only of the apotasis, clause B? And we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, for if, now this scar is giving you the reason for something. Is it giving you the reason for line B, 
or the reason for line C? Is he about to, exp to give the reason for the megenoit? Of course not, because such and such. Or is he about to give the reason for why somebody might infer uh, line B is therefore Christ a uh, um, servant of sin? Then you have another protasis uh, there. The things that I have uh, broken down, these are also built up. Then you have the apotesis. I establish myself a transgressor. Now, does that refer to the building or to the destroying of things? It gets complicated. And then line F, for I, through the law, have died to the law. Is that giving the reason only for that last clause in line E? Or is it giving a reason for the whole logic of the of the of the passage? It's uh, it's fascinating stuff. And by the way, I think that the Machen is at his best in dealing with this. This is a passage that, that I'm, uh, really blows my mind because, uh, as I mentioned, his notes in Galatians were really columns in a church paper, you know, for popular consumption. And he deals with these incredibly complicated linguistic in, in a very, very um, understandable style. Now, I don't know how many people would, were able to follow, but uh, it's, uh, it's quite an interesting uh, example of, uh, of trying to popularize difficult issues. Um, anyway, let me, um, <clears throat> because I, I don't think it's a good idea to spend all this time here, and if you're really interested in pursuing this, I refer you to Machen's book and, and uh, sort your way through them. But I don't want to spend time here for a couple of reasons. One of them is that some of these possible problems are almost peculiar to Machen. In other words, uh, most commentators don't really pay a lot of attention to uh, some of these possible ways of, of linking the, the material. Um, and uh, Machen's resulting exegesis, I mean, when he's finished with everything, uh, seems a little bit uh, forced and, and maybe more complicated than it ought to be. Um, however, it is important, I think, to, um, to uh, at, the, uh, at the very least, keep in mind the, uh, the importance of understanding line C, uh, this uh, emphatic denial what is Paul denying? Is he denying the whole logic of that conditional sentence? In other words, uh, if by seeking to be justified in Christ we have been found ourselves to be um, uh, sinners, are we therefore is Christ therefore a minister of sin? That whole argument he is denying. Or is he accepting the, the protasis and only denying the inference drawn from that protasis? And um, in my estimation, he's only denying the apotesis. He does agree with the principle that there is a sense in which those who have been who have sought to be justified in Christ even though they're Jews 
have turned out to be sinners. Um, he, I'm saying he accepts that. What he does not accept is the further inference, well then therefore, Christ must be a servant of sin. Then further, um, I would say that the gar of line D gives the reason for the megenoita, for the megenoita. Um, even though Machen prefers to link it with the uh, with line B. Um, I'm going to give you the reason why somebody might infer that Christ, I, I think that's pretty forced, so I, I don't buy that. I think it is really uh, an explanation of line C. Now, there are couple, uh, we're going to come back to some of this um, before we're finished here. But I want to try to get a sense for what the thrust of the whole passage is, and, and that's why I want to talk about what I'm calling here the overarching concern. What I'm after here is to make sure that we interpret the details in the light of the whole, that we try to identify what are the major concerns, what is the driving thrust of this passage, and then make decisions about details in line with that. The key words, I think, are, number one, I mentioned before, this anankatseis judaitsein back in verse 14, you are forcing the Jews, the Gentiles, to Judaize. That's one. And the other one is verse 20, in verse 21, Uk I do not um, cancel out or nullify the grace of God. That accusation of verse 14 which I think needs to be very, taken very seriously if we're going to understand verses 15 to 21. That accusation seems surprising, a surprising inference at first. And it must be substantiated. I think part of the function of verses 15 to 21 is to explain why in Paul's view, Peter's behavior involves a forcing of the Gentiles to Judaize. And that's why I think it's important to understand uh, verses 15 to 21. With regard to the phrase in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, to me, that also sounds like some kind of accusation. And to other commentators, it sounds like, like, you know, it's like Paul is responding to an accusation. But what accusation? Burton suggests that Paul was accused of setting aside God's special grace in giving the law. But if that's true, the following sentence does not support that. Uh, you know, when he goes on, uh, for if the law is, uh, if righteousness is by the law, then Christ is, uh, Christ died in vain. Uh, that, the, the logical connection there, I don't think works very well if the, if the grace that Paul is talking about is God's grace in giving the law. 
I think it's much better uh, a meaning, well, let me paraphrase it. I am determined not to frustrate God's grace as I would be doing if I had failed to speak up in Antioch. I will not nullify God's grace. I will not frustrate it. That's why I did what I had to do. Because the implications of, of what Peter was doing were in fact that righteousness would come through the law. And Christ's death would then be in vain. Now, don't uh, just keep that in the back of your mind as a possibility. However you handle that, the verse clearly indicates that the whole passage ought to be understood as Paul's attempt to guard the doctrine of grace in opposition to a doctrine of the kaiosune dianomu, righteousness through law. He wants to guard the doctrine of grace in opposition of in opposition to the doctrine of righteousness through law. And uh, he wants to do that with specific reference to the cost and the value of the death of Christ. Now, you know, verse 20 that everybody knows is intensely personal. And it reveals Paul's true motivating impulse in this very difficult situation. Uh, you know, there's the question as to whether verses 15 to 21 are a reproduction of the words that Paul spoke to Peter in Antioch. And I think that's probably taking it too far. I don't think they cannot be identified ex totally. But I think it would be an even greater mistake to dissociate whatever Paul said in Antioch with what he's saying here in verses 15 to 21. Certainly, verses 15 to 16 must be part of the speech that he gave to Peter. Uh, but, but the rest of the passage becomes so deeply mixed with Judaizing charges and misunderstandings that cannot be clearly sifted out. And in particular, verse 17, I don't think sounds right if Paul is simply addressing Peter at this point. I think there's a broader connection now. By the time you get to verse 17, Paul definitely is not, not merely quoting what he said in Antioch, but he's now uh, you know, going in, in other directions as well.